The John Morris Show, episode 124. The John Morris Show. Your life on code. Ladies and gentlemen, John Morris. Hey everybody, welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. This episode, I want to go I want to go a little bit more into what we kind of been talking about. I want to I want to talk about some things I'm seeing in tech and get into the future of tech a little bit. And then I also want to talk a little bit about how to escape your day job and become a full-time coder in just a few months. So this was something that someone I know I've taken through and I want to tell you what we did and how we were able to get him out of of the situation he was in and into a full-time coding career and how you can do the same if you just kind of follow this the same pathway that, that I'm going to lay out for you. All right, but before we do that, I want to go into some of the future of tech and what I'm seeing happening and the things I think you should be paying attention to and what it's going to mean for us ultimately and how you can set yourself up to benefit from that. Now, I should say before I do that, uh, if you're someone who's new to the show, then there are several ways that you can subscribe to the show. If you're on an Apple device, you can do it johnmorrisonline.com slash iTunes. If you're on an Android device, johnmorrisonline.com slash Android, and you can subscribe now. I've recently made a change with the podcast, so if you're someone who's normally following on YouTube, these longer-form podcasts aren't going to be over on YouTube. So if you want to make sure and get access to these, then you want to make sure and subscribe through either iTunes or Android. Also, if you wouldn't mind sharing the show with someone who you think could benefit, I really am focused on trying to reach as many people as I can with this, help as many coders as I can to be able to to get through this hump and do exactly what we're going to talk about, how to escape that day job and become a full-time coder and, and do it as quickly as possible. So if you know somebody who wants to do that and could could use this information, I'd appreciate it if you'd share it with them. All right, so getting into the future of tech, I, I was on Mashable the other day. Now, I'm not saying Mashable is the end-all, be-all of, of tech sites, but it does, it among others, gives you a certain idea of what's going on in the tech industry. And I was just kind of looking through the different posts and in the tech section, looking through the post titles and some of the goings on over there. And there were, it was kind of a series of titles that really kind of stuck out to me. So I, w- I want to show you exactly what I saw and then and, and describe to you why I think this is important. So here's an example of some of the different post titles. So Tesla and Solar City $2.6 billion merger levitating apple watch charger amazon alexa amazon's alexa can lock your front door if you own this smart lock is this what gopro's karma drone looks like meet spider the tiny robot doctor for blimps apple sells its billionth iphone dyson's 360 irobot vacuum is an able roomba competitor despite its blunders Samsung's Gear 360 is the VR video camera for the masses. And solar-powered solar impulse plane completes its trip around the world. Now, at first blush, none of that stuff may seem like it's related. But in my mind, it is. And what it is showing us, what you're seeing here, if you look at all of these, they're all related to different technology and and how it's infecting every single different industry. I mean, 
One of these posts is about a robot doctor for blimps. If you can find anything more obscure than that, then I'd love to hear about it. But that's about as obscure of an industry or a niche that you could maybe think of. And yet there's technology there influencing that niche. Apple with its billionth iPhone, obviously, and its influence, Tesla and the solar energy and solar city and the solar power kind of industry, Amazon and Alexa, a levitating watch charger. All of this in my mind adds up to what I've kind of been saying that I, I believe we are on the precipice. I believe we're on the edge of a coming change in technology and how much it's going to affect our everyday lives. I know it already is in a lot of ways, but I I just don't think that we've seen anything yet. And I think that it's going to be even more disruptive in the next five to 10 years. Now, for a lot of people, that would be scary, but I want to, I want to tell you why that's something that you should look forward to if you're doing the right things now. And we'll talk about what those are. But before I get into that, I want to kind of drive this point home of how much things are really changing and how disruptive this could be. So I've got a few few examples for you. First off, you may have heard that Amazon is developing drones that will be able to take Amazon. They'll have a local distribution center maybe next to some major city and these drones will be able to take packages and deliver them anywhere in that city within, say, 30 minutes to an hour. And so you'll be able to go on Amazon, pick out some sort of product, and if they have it in the local warehouse, be able to get it delivered to you via drone within, like, 30 minutes. Now, you may look at that and go, oh, that's cool. That's a neat little thing. It's just it's this handy little idea. But if you... Uh, a good book, if you're into this kind of thing, a good book for you to read is a book called Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, I believe is his name. And the whole, the lesson, the one lesson really that he drives home is about looking at when any sort of economic situation, looking at both sides of the equation. A lot of times what people do is they look at just one side of the equation. So for example, a classic example is whenever we look at say government spending and we're you know they're spending money on infrastructure what what people tend to do and what politicians try to get you to do is look at just the jobs that are created as a result of that but what they often don't have you look at and what po- people don't see is the other side of the equation and what was lost because that that money to pay for those jobs had to come from somewhere. So what was lost on the other end? And then comparing those two things. Now, whatever your political stripe is, you know that that's not really important. It's important to look at the whole situation regardless. So when looking at this, that's the exact same point when it comes to something like Amazon and its local delivery. Yeah, it's cool. It sounds neat, the technology. But you also have to look at what it's actually going to affect and influence. And so I looked up some of the numbers and courier and local delivery services like FedEx and UPS and some of the other ones that do that kind of local delivery, 
that would normally be the ones delivering those Amazon products, that is a $90 billion a year industry. So it's no small industry. And you can imagine what would happen if someone like Amazon suddenly didn't need those services. Now, I know Amazon is one company, but if you can start to imagine Amazon does it, then maybe Walmart starts to do it, and a number of other places start to do that same thing and no longer need a FedEx or a UPS or a, or a United States Postal Service for local delivery. That's a huge disruption to a major industry. Now you start talking about those people in those courier jobs, the people driving the FedEx truck or the UPS truck, the people working at the warehouse, the managers, etc., no longer being needed, no longer being necessary, being out of jobs. That's a major disruption to an industry based off of one small piece of technology that could be developed. So again, the, the point here is that this technology that we're seeing, these little, what seem like little gains in technology have the potential to be major disruptions in huge industries, causing layoffs and, and unemployment and so forth. Now, don't get me wrong, for the better, right, it, it, it actually raises people's standard of living. You may not feel that way if you're the one that loses your job, but we'll get into what you need to do in order to be able to, to, to make it through this kind of thing. All right, so that's one example. Here's another one. Let's take the energy industry, specifically, you know, electrical utilities. Now, it was hard for me to nail down the exact yearly revenue in total. Hundreds of billions is, is what I could gather for the industry. So a hundred, hundreds of billions of dollars a year in this industry. Now, the average monthly consumption for electricity in the United States is 900 kilowatt hours or about 30 kilowatt hours per day. So we've seen innovations like solar and so forth that are coming out. For example, Tesla has a power wall, which is a whole home battery that you can connect to your, to your home that the battery, it's a 6.4 kilowatt hour battery and it will fill itself up essentially, whether through solar, you can hook it to the grid, whatever. But in this case, we'll assume solar, you can hook it up and it'll be able to store 6.4 kilowatt hours. So one of those would be able to power the average home in the United States for one fifth of a day, roughly. So, and, and you can buy that power wall for $3,000. Now there are some additional costs with the electrician hooking up and the, the panels and wiring and so forth. So, you know, there are, there are more costs than that, but if you can imagine Let's say you got five of those batteries. Now you would have over the 30 kilowatts per day necessary to where you could power your entire home off of, off of solar. And I actually looked it up and for where I live in Nebraska, the, the, the total estimated cost to be go, to go completely off of the grid and go with something like solar is $18,000. Now, that was actually in 2011, and we've seen a fairly sharp de decrease in 
the prices of solar panels since 2011. So the cost is actually less than that. But even at $18,000, if you did that for your home over the next 20 years, because of what you'd save off of your energy bill, you would actually make up $15,000. You'd save $15,000 over those 20 years, or you'd gain $15,000. Again, that's based off the 2011 numbers. It's even more now because the prices have dropped. So again, the point being, and and this technology is only going to continue to advance. So again, the point being, this is a huge industry. In fact, this is one of the industries that, depend depending on who you talk to, is a problem industry. You know, with the fossil fuels and so forth, this is this is a big problem. It's a source of massive political debate here in the United States but could be completely disrupted in the next five to 10 years by the innovations that are happening in the solar industry. Okay, so just another example of some sort of industry that could be disrupted by this. Now, this last one will get a little weird on you, but I think it's interesting. I read a book by Ray Kurzweil, who you may or may not have heard of, but he's kind of a futurist, I guess is what they call him. And what he tries to do is he tries to look at technology and its rate of growth and predict what's going to happen in the future 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. And he's actually been fairly successful at it, been, been, was able to pick, predict the internet before it came about, predicted cell phones, predicted a number of other things before they came about. And I read his book, Singularity, and it's, his method is interesting because it is very you know, you would think a futurist that's trying to make predictions like this would be just some crackpot who's making assumptions and just kind of throwing stuff out there. But that's not actually what he does. He actually has a model that he uses, and it's based off the idea that technology uh, increases at an exponential rate. Meaning, let's take internet speed. Let's say this year the the fastest internet speed was one megabyte per second. Well. And then in the next year, we were able to increase that by another megabyte. So the next year was two megabytes. Well, people tend to see that kind of progress as occurring linearly. So in a so th- this next year, it, it increases by one megabyte. The next year, it'll increase by another megabyte, two, three, four years. So in 10 years, we'll increase by 10 megabytes. But that's not actually how computer that's not actually how technology advances it increases exponentially so this year we may see a one megabyte increase but next year it might be two megabyte increase the year after that four the year after that eight so in 10 years from now we don't see a a tenfold increase we see a you know, we're, we're up to 50 megabytes so we see a 50 fold in a increase or, or whatever it ultimately is and that's the way technology tends to advance and so Knowing that, what he does is he tries to use his mathematics to try and figure out where we are in that exponential curve because it's a predictable curve. He tries to figure out where we are and then extrapolate out where we'll be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, and then imagining what the technology looks like at that time, what what the world will then look like. So one of the ones he does in the books, he talks about computer computing power of PCs. And so he talks about how fast computers are able to process data. And he talks about where we are. And then 10 years from now, where he thinks we'll be. And then 
when we have that computing power, what, what that, how that will affect everything. So one of his predictions is that we will have reached what he calls a singularity by 2045. Now, 2045 is what he put in the book. I think he's come out recently since and revised that to 2035. But the singularity is basically a point at which computers will be as smart as humans, where they'll, they'll, they'll have reached our uh, computing capacity and, and our capability. So from that point forward, then they will essentially take over uh, take over advancing themselves because they'll be as smart as us and then very quickly smarter than us and be able to advance their technology on their own even quicker. Now, there's a lot of implications all that, and I know it sounds all weird and stuff, but there are people out there who are working on replicating what the human brain can do using computers. There are people out there that are tackling this problem and at some point, whether it's 2035 or where, whenever, it's going to happen. And when that happens, that's going to be a fundamental shift. Again, a major disruption to the way things are right now. So, again, I'm not here to debate whether Kurzweil's right or, or whatever. The point is that these kinds of disruptions are coming. And what makes this even... Uh, even more important is that if you look again at the the post titles that I read earlier, they're all coming at the same time. So it's not like you have one industry being disrupted one year and then you know five years later it's another. All of this stuff is happening and coalescing at the exact same time. So, in my opinion, there are major disruptions to long-established industries coming in the next 5, 10, 15 years. It's, it's coming. And we haven't seen anything yet in terms of how technology is going to change things. Now, the reason I bring all this up to you guys is a couple things. First off, if you still have any notion of this traditional mindset of go to school get a degree, get a good job, and then I can work in that industry for the next 30 to 40 years, you've got you've to you've let that go. It's just there's too much that's going to happen. I mean, we're talking about major industries in the United States and around the world that are probably going to be disrupted in the next 5 to 10 years. That doesn't include all of the little ones that also exist that are going to have the same, if not more, disruption in them. So, again, if you've got this mindset that you can just lock into an industry or career and you, you don't have to pay attention to everything that's going on, that's alluring because it's simple. It's alluring because it has it's associated with less anxiety. The problem with it is that, in my opinion, it's not true. And so... What you have to do is you have to learn how to be able to read these things. I don't care what industry you're in. You have to learn how to be able to read these things and see what's coming because the change is just going to be happening more and more rapidly for the foreseeable future. So again, you have to be able to read it, 
be able to recognize what's coming, adjust, and then position yourself to benefit from it. And that's the second reason that I bring this up is that you right now listening to this podcast, if you're listening to this podcast, you are uniquely positioned to benefit from all of this. And the reason why is you are someone who is taking on this mantle of being willing to dive into, learn, and build technology. Now, just think about how many people you know who, if you told them, hey, you should start learning technology or how to program or whatever, they would say, oh, I don't, you know, I don't like that. That sounds boring or I'm not smart enough or who would just dismiss it out of hand. Probably most of the people you know. There's probably very few people among your friends and family who would be like you. So that uniquely positions you to benefit from this, separates you from probably 90% of people out there, is that you're just willing to dive into it. Forget what you know and your skill. Just being willing to say, I can do this, separates you from probably 90% of people. Now. I know that building websites with HTML isn't the same thing as an Amazon building an Amazon drone or software for it or whatever. I get that that's not the same thing. But the point is is that the disruptions for the foreseeable future, everything that I've just talked about are more likely to fall your way than not. Meaning they're more likely to be to your benefit than not. And they're more likely to increase the demand for what you do than not. So again, you are uniquely positioned to benefit from it. But what you don't want to do is wait or waste your time getting to the point where you're positioned. You don't want to screw around trying to learn this stuff and get good at this stuff and miss the wave that's coming. You want to be out in front of it and position yourself to profit from it. So what I'm getting at ultimately is now is not the time to sit back. Now is not the time to go, I've made it. Things are going to change dramatically. So now is the time to buckle down. Now's the time to keep your eyes wide open and see what's coming. I believe firmly, and I'm, believe me, I'm doing the same thing, but I believe that what we do, what you do over the next five to 10 years, in my opinion, will determine what you get for the next 30 to 40. Now, as a side note, why I don't <laughs> makes no sense to me people who balk at I, I get this all the time people who balk at the idea of having to spend a few bucks to learn some of this stuff it's just it's incredibly short-sighted you're you're costing yourself time that you could be positioning yourself I mean when this comes through the the amount that you can benefit is what it would cost you 
to position yourself properly for this pales in comparison to how you can benefit if you do it right. So it makes absolutely no sense because it's not right now. It's not about money. Money should not be your focus at all. I get that's easy to say, but trust me, I've been in that position. I know that you can find what you need to find. I mean, you can find 20 bucks for a Udemy course or seven for my PHP course. Like people that balk at that, just incredibly short-sighted. What matters now is speed. It's getting to the point where you can benefit from this quickly. So you do, the more you're able to focus on positioning yourself where you're not trying to, you're not trying to learn the skills. You're actually out there doing it and positioning yourself as a service provider, as someone with a product, you know, as a teacher, etc. The more time you can be doing that, the fir- the more you're going to benefit. The more, the better you'll be positioned for when this hits. So speed is what you should be focused on. And so, in my opinion, what you should do is you should first off just pick an area. Pick an area that you want to specialize into. Web, it could be mobile, it could be getting into you know, some of the actual computer software for drones, or it could be AI, whatever it is. Whatever part of this tech thing you want to be involved in, pick an area. And then go learn what you have to learn to get out there and start creating stuff. Creating products or being a service provider or teaching others, whatever. Learn that as absolutely fast as you can. Focus on speed, not on cost, because I'm telling you, I'm 100% convinced that the benefit that's coming will far outweigh any cost that you, you could ever have. So focus on speed, because that's what's going to matter. And then start positioning yourself as a service provider, as a uh, someone who has a product, or as a teacher. I mean, I love teaching. There's a reason, there's lots of things that I could teach. Uh, when I was in the military, I learned the art of teaching, how to teach anything, really. Because that was my job, and I taught numerous different things when I was in the Army, from convoy ops to self-defense to all sorts of things. So I could be teaching anything. There's a reason that I'm teaching tech. Okay, So I'm doing the same thing. There's a reason that I'm putting out right now as much content as I am, because I know that when my kids get of age, when they start getting into this stuff, I want to be positioned with a thousand YouTube videos and a thousand articles and so forth out there for them to find so that they come to me for their for their 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 teaching that's me positioning myself you want to do the same thing whether you want to be a teacher too or you want to be a service provider you want to build the next bootstrap or the next android or whatever you got to learn it so you can start doing it and positioning yourself. And then as you do that, watch as the people come in in droves over the next five to 10 years. Because I honestly believe that that's, that's what, what's going to happen. So again, to get back to my, the point of all of this, don't mess around. Don't let stupid things Stop you from learning this as fast as possible. Don't let your pride get in the way. Don't let the silly notion of, oh, I can't be sold, get in the way. 
you're you're it's short sighted and it's going to cost you i firmly believe that it's going to cost you if you let continue to let it slow you down all right i got to take a break coming up after the break i'm going to get into we're going to actually put some meat on these bones and talk a little bit about how to escape your day job and become a full-time coder in just a few months. I'm going to tell you the story of a family member of mine who went through this process and what we did and what he was able to do as a result. Hopefully give you some good insight in how to do it and also just some motivation and, and some hope and some belief that you can do this. All right, so that's what's coming up after the break. You're listening to John Moore Show, johnmorrisonline.com. You know, one of the big mistakes that I see a lot of developers make is they make learning how to code much harder than it has to be. For example, I see a lot of developers who think the list of skills that they need to learn to master PHP is pages and pages and pages long. It's not. Now, I've said this before, and I will definitely say it again, but there's a foundational set of skills that you need to learn in order to be functional as a PHP developer, meaning that you can execute on projects and get paid. This is the fallacy that is so prevalent in the PHP developer community, that there's this ideal set of skills that you have to learn and that you have to be the absolute greatest developer in the history of mankind in order to be able to get paid to code. You don't. You simply need to be able to execute on projects. I talk about end results all the time. You need to be able to deliver end results to clients because that's ultimately what they want. But when you focus on these foundational skills and learning only those first, the things that will allow you to execute on projects, what you realize is that you can start getting paid to code much faster than you probably ever thought because you haven't set this idealistic, unattainable bar for yourself to reach before you allow yourself to take paid work. You can start now when you can execute on a deliverable, when you can complete a a single project, when you can create a contact form or a business website. When you can execute on that, you can start. And you could start then building the life that you wanted that you got into this all for the, in the first place, instead of continuing to slave away at some job, making somebody else rich. Anyway, you can learn these skills in my free course, the beginner's guide to PHP, which you can enroll in at johnmorrisonline.com slash learn PHP. And it's going to teach you these foundational skills so you can get started right now. Again, it's a completely free course that you can take at johnmorrisonline.com slash learn PHP. Don't wait on this. Head over there right now and get started building that life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. So several years ago, my little brother came to me fairly desperate i would say <laughs> i remember i remember when he showed up finally showed up at my house and getting there was a bit of a ordeal but i remember when he got there and just the look in his eyes 
I could just, he was overwhelmed. He was frustrated. He was kind of on the brink of a bit of a breakdown, it seemed like. So, uh, I, re- you know, I remember it fairly distinctly because in order to get there, he was driving from Michigan and he had to drive to my house in this beat up, I think it was 1970s, 1980s truck. It was really beat up, really old, run down truck. Matter of fact, on the way down, the truck had broken down twice, I believe it was. So he had to stop and fix it on his own. Now, having owned this truck for a while and been in the situation he is, he'd kind of become a bit of a MacGyver when it came to cars. So he's able to get it um, back up and running, but he had to fix it. Like tw- I think it, it even delayed him like a day and he had to continue on to my house. I, I remember I'm pretty sure I even had to send him money for him to be able to get there because he had ended up having to spend some money on parts and so forth. And that ruined his budget for his trip down. So it was a really bad situation. He was broke, he was frustrated, and I could tell that he was really worried about his immediate future. Now, the interesting thing is that he was also three years into his computer science degree. Now, he wasn't, at this time, he wasn't fresh out of college. He was in his mid-20s. So he had gone to school and then dropped out and kind of went back and at that point, he was three years into his computer science degree. So he had taken quite a few classes in terms of computer science. But he had convinced himself that he had to finish his degree and get his degree before he could ever consider applying at any tech company and before they would ever hire him. Now, before I get into what we did, I think it's important for me to point out, and this is going to sound a bit arrogant here, but to be honest with you, when it comes to this kind of thing, I am a bit arrogant simply because I've proven it to myself time and time again. But I think of myself as somewhat of a interview assassin, so to speak, meaning I have a history of getting interviews for jobs I had no business interviewing for, no business getting, and going in and nailing the interview and getting the job. In fact, I remember one time I was working for a company and it was, uh, I was work at that, uh, I was working, um, in the factory and I was working, this was right when I got back from Iraq. So right when I got back, I had applied to work at the factory and just work on the line. Now I'd had some management experience before that, but I was just, if you've heard me talk about the situation I was in at that time, I was, you know, uh, I was coming off of, I had like three days of leave. I was like five days back from Iraq. I hadn't, I was in the middle of a door divorce. So I had no place to live, no car, nothing. I was in a really bad spot. So I was taking basically anything that I could get. So I'd applied for this job, at this uh, factory in the town where I was and I'd got hired and I was there not very long and I couldn't do it. It just, uh, was not for me. So one day I just walked out. It was, they had, you know, you had your regular breaks. I went out to my car for a break and I just left and never went back. Well, several months later, I reapplied at that, at that same company for a management position. I had put in my cover letter that I had worked there before and left and explained and so forth. And I had got an interview somehow and they knew full well 
what I had done, that I had walked out in the middle of the the day. But they hired me anyway because I nailed the interview. And not only to get my uh, uh, job back with them, it was a promotion. Now I was a manager. So it, to me, and, and there were several other jobs that I got. I remember I got one for a sales company that was a professional sales company that was a base salary of 70,000 a year plus commission and easily could make over six figures at this, the, the, the company. And I had no business. I mean, I was not, when it came to sales, I was good, but what that position was, I had no business getting hired for that job, but I got hired because I nailed the interview. I just, I had a knack for nailing the interview. So I have, I've have and have had for a while a certain kind of cockiness when it comes to this. And I fully admit that it's arrogance, but I truly believe that I could get hired for any job if I can get the interview. So when he told me, I, I say all that because when he told me that he thought he had to wait till he had his degree to get hired, I, to me, I was like BS. And I told him that, no, BS, you don't. And I'm telling you that same thing. You don't have to wait. And his situation proves it. So anyway, when he finally got to the house, I did a couple things. First off, I made him start freelancing. And if you haven't heard this from me yet, every developer should freelance at some point in their career. There are things that you learn as a freelancer about how to work with clients, about how to deliver, about how to be reliable, responsible, about how to market yourself that you just will never learn if you don't do some freelancing. So there's there's nothing that can replicate that one-on-one client experience like that. And it helps you a ton, even if you go into something where you have kind of a tr- traditional workplace, you have a boss and so forth. It helps you to see your boss as kind of a client and to really get an idea of what they're really after and be able to give it to them and help your career to get promotions and so forth. So I believe every developer should freelance at some point. So that's what I made him do. I made him start freelancing right away. And that f- that experience of freelancing gave him confidence because he saw, he got hired within, I think, a week uh, getting paid $25 an hour for his services. Now, you and I know that $25 an hour here in the United States is for a, a, a web developer is pretty low. But for him, that's more money than he'd made per hour in his entire life. And it just, it woke him up. His his mind was like, okay, wait a second. Like this actually, like people do this, like this actually happens. And so he saw that people would be willing to pay him to code, that he could actually deliver on projects. He was capable of doing it and that he knew how to interact with clients. That freelancing experience, he'll tell me to this day, that freelancing experience, because now he's a, he's a consultant. We'll get into what he does now a little bit, but he's a consultant. And so much of what he does, he's a tech consultant. It's consulting on technologies. It's that one-on-one interaction. Well, where he first learned those skills and honed his chops doing that was as a freelancer. And so, again, he just got way more confident as a result of that. The second thing that I made him do was start applying for entry-level positions at big tech companies. And the reason that is, is this goes back to kind of the dirty secret of big companies like this. Well, tech or otherwise, it's not just tech companies that that suffer from this. And that is, 
they are desperate for good employees. Every I've worked for some really big companies. Every single one of them, the number one problem they have is finding enough good people. They're constantly short of people. And so they're oftentimes they're having to deal with people who aren't as good because they just need a warm body. So good people are always hard to find. It's the number one problem of every single company out there. And the bigger the company, the bigger the problem they have because their growth is limited by their ability to find good people to do the jobs that they need done. So for entry-level positions, very specific entry-level positions, if you're applying for a senior level or exec or whatever, then this is a little different. But for entry-level positions, they know that they're going to have to train you. They know that if all they ever take is people who already have all the skills that they need, they're never going to have enough people. So they know that you're not going to know everything because if you did, you'd be applying for a different job. So, and, and, and that's because they're just starved for intelligent, reliable, creative people. Notice none of that had anything to do with, do you know Java or do you know this or do you know that? They want smart people, reliable people, people that can be creative and, and think and so forth. That's what they're after. So... One of the companies that uh, my little brother applied to was IBM, huge company. And he applied for an entry-level Java application developer. Now, I I laugh and him and I laugh about this day because at the time he didn't know any Java. When he applied, he didn't know a lick of Java. Now, it was a few weeks before the interview. So in that time, he spent some time trying to learn Java and so forth. But he didn't know any Java when he applied for the job. <laughs> but I laid out what he needed to do in order to ace the interview. Because again, I this was something I'd had a lot of experience with and I knew what how to win these interviews. It didn't matter what industry it was in. So I, I told him what to do and he went in and he did exactly what I told him and he got the job. And this was... now. He started out making about 40000 a year, which is a modest salary. But for him at the time, at the time he was a really broke college student, it was a life changer. And that was, I think, about two months after he had first came to my house. So within two months, he had went from broke, desperate, no idea what to do, to now in the tech industry with an entry-level job making more money than he'd ever made in his life. And he didn't learn a single bit of code in that time. He maybe learned some. But it wasn't that that made the difference for him. It was simply going for it and then some of the stuff that I told him about how to ace the interview. Now it's about four years later. He's making a six-figure income. He works for, he doesn't work for IBM anymore, but he works for uh, a company that's in the Inc. 5000 one of the fastest growing companies in the country and somebody that he's highly, highly sought after. And it's funny because (laughs) he still really doesn't know Java. Uh, The way he puts it to me is he can read it, but not really write it that well. And his initial job was a Java application developer. It's not what he does now, but it's just, it's funny when people get so hung up on the skill part of it. 
And he did finally get his CS degree. He stayed in school and got a CS degree. But I remember when he got it, it was like, oh, hey, by the way, I got my degree. <laughs> it had zero effect on his career, zero effect on his salary. Nothing changed. He's just like, well, now I have it. It became this thing that he was fixated on that he had to have to now. Oh, yeah, I got it. It's cool. It was just, it was nice to have. So the point of all of this is if you're one of those people that thinks that you have to wait, that there's something you're fixated on that you have to wait in order to get, like if you have to wait until you get your degree or you have to think you have to wait until you learn this or that set of skills, you have to wait till you feel more confident and comfortable or whatever barrier you, you have placed in front of yourself, I'm here to tell you that you don't. You don't have to wait. You can go for it now. And understand that especially for entry-level jobs, they know they're going to have to train you. What they're after are some very specific things that they want to see in that interview process from you. Now, as a side note, I'm going to be doing a training this month for supporters over on Patreon. And I'm tentatively (laughs) calling it Ace Their Interview. And so what I'm going to be doing in this training is I'm going to be telling you everything that I told my little brother and telling you all the stuff that I've used for years to ace interviews and get hired for jobs that I really never should have got hired for. And it's going to be a you know a full-on training where I show you every little thing that I do uh, and show you how interviews become almost laughable when you you really understand what's going on and what you need to say in order to ace the interview. So I'm going to be doing that over on Patreon this month for Patreon supporters. You can go to johnmorrisonline.com slash Patreon to learn more about a, uh, becoming a supporting listener and be able to get access to that course once I release it. All right, so that'll do it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to the episode. If you did, be sure to like it or leave me a review over on iTunes. I'd greatly appreciate that. That's one of the ways that you can help spread the show. Again, johnmorrisonline.com slash iTunes. You can also subscribe over on Android at johnmorrisonline.com slash Android. Again, these are episodes I'm only releasing on iTunes and, and Android. These aren't going up on YouTube, so... If you're someone who's listening to the show for the first time, I want to make sure you don't miss out on any of these. Be sure to head on over to those two places and subscribe. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.